So, thank you so much. Uh, what I thought I'd do today is really come from my perspective. Uh, you heard in the bio that I consider myself a community-engaged scholar. Uh, not everybody in the academy um, really um, engages uh, well with the community to do their scholarship. So I wanted to really come from that perspective. Uh, I really want to um, just do an introduction, an overview of what the ending the HIV epidemic, EHE, as most of us call it, really what it is and why it came into being. Um, and then to really go into my area, uh, which is really what we call academic community partnerships. CBPR is the methodology, community-based participatory research. So I really wanted um, uh, you as an audience to understand those principles and, and the methodology, and then to learn uh, uh, me for me to give some lessons learned um, from two faith-based HIV projects. I mainly, I do a lot of CBPR, not only in uh, HIV, um, but in the HIV arena, I mainly work in uh, faith-based um, settings, and I'll talk a little bit about why, why that's so. So ending the HIV ep epidemic, uh, many of you know uh, about uh, what this is. You hear 90-90-90. We want to uh, really prevent 90% um, of new infections uh, um, by 2020, 75% in 2025. I didn't really know that statistic. Um, but it's really a, a way, a strategy in the U.S. for us to really end the epidemic by that time. So if we're talking about ending the epidemic in 2025, we've got five years left. Well, three years left, right? 2022. So we've really got to do some things uh, really to move our agenda. And it, as, if you see at the end, the uh, bottom of this uh, slide, HHS really talks about doing that with um, uh, in four four ways, really um, treatment. Um, I can't read my own uh, writing here. Prevention, diagnosis first, um, uh, uh, treatment, prevention, and then response. So the EHE really focuses in on high priority areas in the country. I remember um, when I first got into HIV prevention, and if most of you have been gone back uh, early in the uh, pandemic, uh, epidemic, um, we were really talking about the um, uh, HIV epidemic being on the East Coast and the West Coast, large uh, metropolitan areas, large cities over 1 million. Well, that has changed, of course. When I moved to Alabama, I moved to Alabama from New York in 2004. So I, when I moved to the Deep South, uh, Alabama, I worked at Tuskegee University National Center for Bioethics. I noticed a stark difference in how people were talking about HIV moving from New York City, the New York City area to Alabama. New York City area, other cities I had lived in, Atlanta, DC, loud advocacy around HIV. Not so much when I moved to Tuskegee in 2004. And so um, in investigating that, um, uh, I, I saw that the ep epidemic had moved to the South, to the deep South. And so that's why if you look at the uh, priority areas, many of them are uh, uh, Southern states. You see Alabama and Georgia there uh, and other Southern states. Um, the other thing I noticed when I was at Tuskegee, I was in a rural county, Macon County, uh, absolutely no uh, discussion about HIV. So I wondered what was going on. Um, and stigma was beginning to be characterized as a major issue 
uh, around why the epidemic was increasing in the South, deep South, not only in large urban areas like Atlanta, for example, in Georgia, but also in rural counties. So you see here, that is really um, uh, the crux of, uh, of what we're talking about. Not, you know, there actually Alabama has some counties that are high priority, including rural areas, but pretty much the whole state. So uh, as we begin to think about this um, EHE, how we're really gonna end this epidemic, remember we only have three years to get to that 90, 90, 90. Um, we've got to look at uh, what we're doing. Of course, over the four decades of HIV, um, the pandemic uh, epidemic, um, uh, the clinical advancements have really changed the game. So we know now there are people uh, living with HIV much longer, more like a chronic disease, um, but we also know that not everyone is benefiting equally from these advances. Uh, we know that newer um, infections are highly concentrated among men who have uh, uh, sex with other men, minorities, especially African-Americans, Hispanics, Latinos. So when I moved to uh, rural Alabama, um, that was an issue, um, uh, particularly because coming from a city like uh, New York where men were out about their sexuality, absolutely not in Tuskegee and in Macon County and other Black Belt counties in Alabama. So, so a major issue. Uh, also, you have African, uh, you have uh, American Indians, uh, American Natives who live in the Southern United States as well. So, in addition to the challenges, um, again, the focus has mainly been on biomedical, but I really want to focus on the social behavioral. And recent data from CDC shows that the vast majority, 80% of new HIV infections in the U.S. in 2016 were transmitted from nearly 40% of people with HIV who, who either didn't know they had it or had been diagnosed for, but were not receiving HIV care. So we really have to kind of hone in on this particular group. Remember, we said diagnosis. So still testing is a major, major issue because a lot of people don't know they have HIV uh, and getting people into care is still a major, major issue because um, that's a huge percentage, 40% who fit that category. But I also want to just really highlight, we've been over the years uh, talking more and more about if we don't really deal with the stigma um, uh, as an underlying issue, we'll never get to the um, ending the HIV epidemic. So we really have to focus on that. And so I've done research in this area because in order to really know how to really get at the stigma, we're going to have to have more research in the area to really um, think about what interventions might work to deal with this. And I'm talking about uh, the, the research I do is more community stigma, how the community feels about stigma. Most of the research that's been done has been much more around internalized stigma, uh, the stigma that's aimed at people living with HIV, which is also important, but we also have to get at the community stigma as well, so, so stigma in general. In addition, it's a whole of society approach. So the coordination for this is across a lot of health, uh, government health agencies. Uh, it will only really um, happen in uh, three years if we continue to have everybody working. So they, we start here with this slide with uh, all sectors of society working together, including people with HIV. I'm glad that's first because I want to really key in on that as a, a part um, that we have not done enough work in, I think, to really have um, people with HIV 
really be leaders and really leading the efforts to end this HIV epidemic. So I'll talk about that a little more, uh, or those who are at risk for HIV, so we can really understand some of the behaviors. Um, it says here, uh, city, county, tribal, and state health departments and other agencies are very important. Clinics, healthcare facilities are important. Healthcare providers, not just um, HIV providers, but primary care providers are very important because they're the ones who were possibly refer. Uh, they might be the first line uh, persons to see a person who's at risk and or might have HIV. Um, opioid use disorder, I understand uh, day one yesterday was about substance abuse, so we've got to kind of combine our knowledge from that uh, as a risk factor for HIV. Professional associations, advocates, community and faith-based organizations, so I want to talk about that a little more. But last uh, but not least, it says here academic and research institutions, which I really sort of highlight it because again, I think we need the research and the scholarship to really um, um, uh, inform interventions and really get to the epi uh, epidemic. So I'm really um, an advocate of academic community partnerships. Um, this, this has been around for a couple of decades. Uh, I first started, uh, next slide, my first job was at Morehouse School of Medicine in Atlanta, Georgia. And I was hired uh, on a tenure track uh, position to do uh, what we now call CBPR, community-based participatory research. It's funny, my husband's a social worker. They've been doing community action research, uh, action research, community engaged research, social workers, uh, nurses have uh, way ahead of medicine, but medicine is, is always the last to really take on these non-medical um, or non-biomedical uh, sort of models. Um, so um, uh, that was that's that's the work I was doing when I was at Morehouse. So what is CBPR, uh, community-based participatory research? It is an approach, like I said, a methodology that equitably involves all partners in the research process and recognizes the unique strengths that each brings. This is a uh, definition by Minkler and Wallerstein in 2003. That pretty much um, uh, sets it up. So what, you know, there are so many phases of research. You have your initial planning phases. You have the phase where you do the implementation of the research, you evaluate the research. Uh, believe it or not, those are all the, the stages where partners, including community leaders, community members, should be a part of uh, that process. So this, this is Barbara Israels, who we call the mother of CBPR. Uh, she came up with eight, nine um, um, core principles of CBPR. So, for example, um, I think it has on here uh, involved at all stages, all phases. See, the third one facilitates collaborative partnerships in all phases of the research. So in, in traditional research, most uh, um, academic um, person come up with an idea of what they want to research. It might involve community, but they go to the community after they've come up with their own idea. That's not what CBPR is. CBPR is more of a collaborative um, uh, process throughout, starting from the beginning, uh, even before you get the grant, uh, even before there's a, a call for doing uh, collaborative research um, for the community and everybody to come together to say, what do we want to do? What are our priorities? What, what are we going to do together as a team? 
Um, so that's number three. It recognizes community as a unity of identity. I can't tell you the number of academic partners, uh, uh, academic uh, colleagues I have that consider uh, underserved minority communities as uh, uh, a negative. And so to go in with that attitude uh, is not going to get you a good outcome. Uh, what you want to do is think of uh, number two, there are strengths in every community, no matter who, but, but, what community it is. Uh, you know, it may be a community that has lots of poverty, but there are also other strengths in that community. So you're coming in with a different sort of uh, a paradigm about how you're going to work together, because how can you work as a partnership if one side feels that they are better or have more advantages than the other? It should it should be thought of as an equal sort of um, 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 partnership. And, and so the fourth one, integrating knowledge and action really for the benefit, uh, mutual benefit of both, of all partners, uh, that, be, that being community members and non-community members, research members. So really keeping that in mind. Co-learning, I have learned so much from community members. <laughs> um, and so I come into this uh, work very humble and knowing that I don't know everything. Uh, there are things that the community can teach me and there are things that I can teach the community as well. Very much an empowering process. Uh, the, the first grant I worked on at, at Morehouse uh, School of Medicine was a Kellogg Foundation grant where it was constantly hammered. Uh, the community empowerment uh, piece was hammered because often um, uh, when you're working with academics or health departments or uh, hospital, um, um, those are the kind of partners I've had in this kind of work. Um, uh, communities have to be very strong um, and have a good sense of who they are in order to be in the same room with, when, room with the dean of a medical school or the CEO of a hospital. So those things are very important. It's a cyclical, uh, iterative um, uh, process, evaluation, very important, uh, and really all partners really understanding the importance of evaluation in order to have sustainability of projects, uh, of health from both a positive and ecological perspective. I've talked about this a little bit already. And then this is an important uh, piece of CBPR. Uh, often communities uh, have complained that traditional research, researchers come in, rape, pretty much take data from the community and never give back to the community. The community didn't know what uh, uh, happened as a result of the research. So dissemination is important, disseminating findings and knowledge that's been gained of all partners. Any experiences uh, of community members working with community and uh, with uh, academics that maybe broke some of these uh, principles? And you're, you could be anonymous. Uh, I, I have been in the room where principles have been broken. I can tell you one particular project I was working in an unincorporated town in uh, Tuscaloosa, and uh, we we this project gave advice to researchers about their research in order to make them much more um, much more actionable in for their community. I know I know that's not the right word, but um, one of uh, we we asked a, a, a faculty member to come in. She was Korean. She brought a Korean community partner with her. They talked Korean throughout the whole um, meeting which I thought was very disrespectful. Um, throughout the meeting, the community members didn't say anything, but I, I said something later uh, about it. With I had a talk, I didn't talk to the uh, uh, my uh, colleague, but I had a, 
uh, talk with the community about it later. So somebody said, how important is it? Question. Uh, saw it for a second there. Mm -hmm. How important is coming out as coming a person out, right. with HIV to the process for the to process succeed. to succeed? But Jacob, that's a great question because that's really some of the things I saw when I moved from New York, for example, where where gay you know gay men are out, uh, much more open. Uh, uh, people are much more open about their sexuality, and and these were in large cities, so it's a different environment to come to somewhere like Tuskegee where it's not really safe, it may not be safe to come out. Uh, I think that's one of the issues that's going on in a place like uh, a state like Alabama, where people are not out there. Um, and, and so the advocacy that's really needed um, for HIV is not quite there because people don't feel safe to come out. So I wish that we could get to a place where it could we could have more openness about our sexual orientation so that we could, you know, a person could say I'm gay and I'm also HIV positive so that, that we could put a face on uh, the disease. Right now, I think we still don't have it as much as we should. And, and, and you're right, the uh, safe spaces for people are, are important. I think that's a great opportunity for uh, aid service organizations to make those safe spaces. It's, it's very hard in rural areas where everybody knows everybody um, you know, it's even harder in a city like Tuscaloosa that's a little smaller than Birmingham. Um, but I, I just think um, until we have um, a face and the people that are living with the disease are leading um, this pandemic, um, uh, um, it's not going to happen. We need them at the table. So, and I know I have, I'm going to say something at the end about that. I, I, I just think we need them. And so that means Black uh, gay men. Uh, it means black women, uh, you know, really. And so I would love to see more of that. I know in the past uh, we've organized consumer advocacy. Um, that has kind of fallen through the cracks at times. Funding isn't always an issue, but we really need the consumer advocacy and leadership development piece. I think it's a piece that's missing. Great questions. And I'm going to talk about that, this a little bit more at the end. I'm really, I really think this is an area that's a, a, a gap, major gap. So the balancing act, of course, for academics is uh, we're on a time clock for tenure. Uh, you know, uh, most of the, the, the relationship building, because I, I have here the word strong, authentic, trusting relationships take a long time. But as my husband used to, not my husband, my son, my father used to ask me, who you, who you courting now? Who you dating now? <laughs> that, that courtship time is important. And uh, for, for us in academia, six years is usually five to six years is we've got to pump out papers and we've got to um, uh, really write grants. Um, so we're really looking at our watch, um, but it really takes a long time. You know, so some of the grants now are moving towards more of a 10 year timeline because that's really how long it takes. I'm going to show you how long I've sort of been working on a CBPR grants and I, this is over two decades. It's not instant. And I've known some partners for, for years before we actually worked on the grant together. So that's my take home message. Um, but it is definitely a balancing act. I've had to um, kind of go on a different track, uh, academic track in order to do what I wanted to do in the academy. Um, it, that has worked for me well. Um, but um, it's, it's something to think about. And it's really um, because the 
of course, with most academic um, places uh, in the academy, they really want you to go after uh, federal grants. So I'm going to show you the federal, the, the the timeline of the federal grants that I've worked on, and how I've had to really kind of blend in. Not just I don't just work on HIV CBPR. I work on CBPR in general, and then I've done also some HIV embedded work within that. So next slide. I think that's what that's coming up. Now the other elephant in the room is that um, it's all about relationships, but but the relationships of working with underserved communities where historically these communities have been recipients of abuse by scientists. Big, big major point. Um, I think in, in, in uh, Barbara Israel's uh, points, you have to really think about um, the underlying issues of racism and sexism um, and gender and, and um, power um, imbalances between uh, scientists and uh, community leaders. So that's, that's the ele elephant in the room. So this this is uh, some of the CBPR work. The big um, sort of you know they like NIH uh, academics like NIH grants because they bring in money and and you know some of it is uh, in order to sustain uh, sustain the academy. But the more money you have, the more you can really do and build capacity. That's the way I want to um, kind of um, envision it. So one of the projects I worked on early on with I'm in the Institute of Rural Health Research. Um, and so we had a five-year NIH grant um, in, as a part of community engagement. It was, it was focused on obesity, but what I was able to do was work with 10 uh, community leaders in uh, the Black Belt, Alabama Black Belt, match them up. We had another faculty member who we helped train uh, uh, 10 academic scholars on campus about CBPR, and we also trained the community leaders about CBPR, and we matched them up to do research together. Um, so that was several years ago. Um, and then after that, uh, I had worked on a three-year grant, uh, what's called PCORI, Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Initiative, another community empowerment sort of um, a grant I was telling you about um, uh, that, that uh, example with the Korean colleague, that was Project SOAR, uh, sharing um, opinions and advice on research. And then after that, I got a CDC fellowship um, that lasted four years for me to work on Project FAITH. I'm going to talk a little bit about it. Um, right now, uh, I've worked on a CIFAR uh, HIV project called a Hotspot Project. I'm going to uh, talk about it as well. But since then, of course, with uh, over the last couple of years, I've been in immersed in uh, community-engaged COVID um, projects. Uh, one is called Communivax, uh, working, uh, the PI is an anthropologist. So there were six projects across the country really working on the COVID-19 uh, equity rollout, rollout, uh, uh, equity rollout of the uh, vaccine. And then I'm now on another project shot on the spot where we're doing the vaccine clinics in 18 Black Belt counties. So you can just see here different NIH, CDC, HRSA, sort of a blend of funding. I love, uh, uh, I'm gonna stop and answer this question from Jacob. Jacob, definitely community empowerment involves leadership development. So none of, none of us have those skills, they all have to be developed and that is definitely a key uh, component of the community empowerment uh, piece. And then Noel asked, it is very important and vital for the workplace having people truthful to their self and clients like this type of jobs is not for everyone. Ah. Good point. And some workers, they're working in this field and the money, not for the passion. 
to be able to help others. Very true, uh, Noah. We need committed, uh, passionate people who really are committed to ending the epidemic for the sake of ending the epidemic, and, and especially in these underrepresented uh, communities. Uh, what I said about um, the history of abuse is real, and we don't need any more abuse. And, and sometimes uh, some people who are working in the fields can do more harm than good. So we have to really be cognizant of that. Um, so I, I just wanted to add the point that my work, HIV, has been embedded in other, other um, areas as well. So uh, uh, one of the things that happened when I first got to Alabama, uh, I, was, I was at uh, Tuskegee for two years, National Science, National Center for Bioethics, and then was recruited over to UA. Uh, we are um, a uh, branch campus of UAB School of Medicine, um, but our, our mission is rural health and uh, primary care. So um, when I first did a project with uh, my colleague with Susan Gaskins at Capstone College of Nursing, we asked 40 um, older persons over the age of 50 uh, living with HIV where they felt most stigmatized. And the answer was the church. So that, that therein began my work in sort of looking at faith-based um, um, communities, African-American pastors and uh, church leaders um, to really deal with this issue of stigma. Project Faith, that's two H's, Faith-Based Anti-Stigma Initiative Towards Healing HIV. And the reason we have two H's is there's another Project Faith in the literature that is um, African-American Deep South uh, uh, de dealing with um, uh, HIV prevention and pastors and lay leaders uh, in South Carolina. If, you're, if any of you know the field, Bambi uh, Gaddis, is definitely a leader in this uh, area. So we wanted to distinguish ourselves from that project. And essentially um, what we did was um, I, I looked in the literature, there were not a lot of interventions dealing with this, you know, how to decrease community stigma in faith-based leaders. Um, I scoured the internet and I found an intervention in Ghana, Christian Council of Ghana. There was not a lot in, in the United States. And of course they were ahead of us because they had been dealing with the pandemic uh, larger numbers. And the, so the Christian uh, Council of uh, Ghana had an intervention. Um, and what we did was adapted it for Alabama. Um, so we, we thank them for uh, setting the groundwork for this study. And what I wanted to do was um, measure, uh, see if we could decrease HIV stigma in uh, church leaders, pastors and church leaders. Secondary uh, objective was to increase HIV knowledge. So essentially we did um, like a clinical trial. We had three arms of the study. We, we, recruited, uh, we recruited 12 churches, 12 pastors, 12 churches. Um, we, got, we wanted to you know, recruit 20 from each church. That would have been 240. So we got 199. And the three arms were, arm one was the Project Faith Curriculum, which really emphasized um, anti-stigma faith-based messages different from just a standard um, AIDS 101 curriculum. And then the third arm, the, that, that group did not get any intervention. They, we just laid um, HIV pamphlets out at the church. And what we hypothesized was that um, the arm one would have the greatest reduction and arm three the least, and that's exactly what happened. And it, it was sort of been a graded um, uh, sequence from one to three. And it was significant. I don't have those results here. I didn't put them here. This was all part of a, a CDC-funded um, uh, MARI fellowship. 
Minority AIDS HIV Research Initiative. I, I'm so grateful that I was able to get this funding. This this uh, funding was is targeted at Black and Latina uh, researchers who are working in those affected communities around HIV prevention. So in my class, I think we had about um, eight uh, researchers. So really, really, and great support uh, from the the Mamari Fellowship Fellows as well as CDC. So great, great experience. Uh, the the it's great Jacob asked, how is HIV stigma in Ghana compared to the situation in Alabama? That's a good question, uh, Jacob. I don't know. I think because they were a little ahead of us numbers wise and really the the um, faith based work. I think it's probably similar in some ways, but I I don't know exactly. But but they had they had stigma issues as well as well as here in the United States. And some of it probably is related to religion. Isn't that interesting? And that's why, you know, uh, uh, the the church as a barrier uh, for, or as a church as uh, the largest amount of stigma in the community, that's interesting. And I think probably that was the same thing in Ghana as well. So I could not have done this work. Uh, you see here four men sitting at the table. These were my uh, pastor liaisons. They were a part of the research team uh, from the beginning to the end. Uh, I could not have recruited. It took me a long time to recruit 12 churches. Can you believe it? A year and a half to uh, recruit because this is a little different than me doing uh, you know, um, some surveys with the pastor. They had to get permission from all um, levels of the church because I was gonna be recruiting their members from the church. I had to go to church services and recruit. I had to talk to deacon boards and elders to recruit, you know, to let them understand what this project was about. And next slide also, that's the research team behind the pastors uh, there, uh, all denominations. But the next slide shows you a quote, I think. Uh, one of the pastors said to me, when you call, when you, we call, we want you to see you, not some graduate students. So those of you who have done research and use uh, in the academy and use graduate students, this is a great model for really um, spreading out the work and getting uh, work done. But uh, for for the pastors, it was me. Uh, the relationship, uh, my relationship, was important to them. So for example, when this pastor would call me on a Monday and say, "Look, I've got seven pastors, eight pastors." who want to talk to you about this project, we need you to come to a meeting uh, Wednesday at 7.30. I had to go, even if, even though I was in Tuscaloosa and this was in Lowndes County. So that's the other, I'm, I'm gonna talk about some lessons learned, but of course, being um, in a relationship, <laughs> if my husband says, come, I have to go. Uh, if my children, you know, we don't have children, but if you have children, uh, if something happens with them, you go. So the priority that you put on the relationship is important. That's why I wanted to put that in there. So those are some of the lessons I've learned, uh, really how we use graduate students. I had one, that's funny, I had one grad, I had my research coordinator wasn't Christian. So I'm work, mainly working with Christian uh, pastors. My, my graduate research assistant was Buddhist. That was a little awkward at times because you know the pastors are gonna ask, what's your religion? Where do you go to church? Um, but, um, but, but mainly I wanted to talk about just the paradigm of how we use uh, graduate students, not not for necessarily for building the relationships um, and getting the work done, but uh, there's some things we have to do as uh, as uh, academic uh, persons. 
Flexibility, I talked about that, just adjusting the uh, schedules to meet community needs. I'm glad, Noelle, you talked about everybody can't do this because I've had colleagues come into the academy and say, oh, I want to do what you do out in the Black Belt. I said, okay. So, you know, I'll invite them to community events. Oh, there's, there's something going on. There's a health fair going on Saturday. Oh, I'm too busy. Uh, you know, by the time I, I, I'm able to weed them out so quickly, Noelle, this ain't for everybody because, you know, it's uh, time consuming. It's very time consuming. The other thing that happened to me with Project Faith was I had to work on Saturdays and Sundays. So that was hard for my project coordinator who had. Um, so this this is these are things you take in, into account. Actually, he quit and then I got another project coordinator. So these are things, you know, most of most academics don't work on Saturdays and Sundays. Those are their days off. But um, for Project Faith, we had to. And then understanding that everybody may not see my priority uh, agenda uh, as their priority, there should be room for negotiation. So some of the relationships that I've had with um, communities, I may work on one of their priorities first and then we may shift to mine. So there's room for negotiation. It can't be uh, my timeline always and, and not their priorities. So those are three important lessons uh, that I've learned. So I just wanted to, um, show one paper that I was uh, publishing and how I was, was able to really rethink this. Um, a lot of times the work that I've done, particularly advocacy working with uh, pastors has been, I want every uh, pastor to really be passionate about HIV prevention and I'm going to ram it down their throat until they are, but that's not really how it works and I've kind of softened up on that. And I've also uh, rethought my whole, uh, one time I was doing a project with eight um, pastors in rural Alabama, and all eight of them wanted to do HIV prevention. So this 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 uh, thing of pastors are resistant to HIV prevention. I said, well, what about these pastors that they're eager to do uh, prevention? And so there there actually happened to be a profile of them. Many of them were um, uh, activists within their denomination, social justice, civil rights, health uh outside of their um uh, church well also the church supported their ideas so over the uh 20 years i've seen uh, uh denominational leaders have hiv prevention as a uh, priority so of course if the bishop says you know this is going to be our priority then the churches follow i've had i've seen in alabama i think it was the ame zion bishop um asked that all pastors have six hours of hiv prevention. So that's helpful, right? Um, also, the, the the comfort of the pastor congregation around HIV AIDS and research, their own personal. Uh, I've had many pastors who are in this uh, fight because they've had personal experiences with HIV. I went to do go do a presentation at one uh, uh, rural Alabama vacation Bible school because the pastor's son had been uh, newly diagnosed, uh, uh, you know, buy-in, for the uh, study by, I've had churches get involved because congregational members said, Pastor, we need to really get into uh, this because this is really a major issue affecting the black community. Um, uh, it depends on uh, the size of the congregation, uh, where they're located. Uh, many of the pastors had uh, were married to nurses because m most of the pastors were um, male and they were married to nurses, which really helps open up the a conversation around HIV. 
And the biggest surprise for me were they were all, uh, the majority of them were what we call reverse migrators. So, you know, in the 50s, uh, when African Americans, uh, uh, 30s, 40s, and 50s, when African Americans left the South in large masses, my father was one of them. He grew up in Selma, Alabama. He went to school in New Orleans and then went straight to New York after graduation, uh, the, the Great Negro Migration. Many of those uh, people are moving back to the South for whatever reasons. They, you know, family, retirement, et cetera. And, they, and many of them had grown up in Alabama, left, went to big cities, Detroit, other places, and then have come back. So there's something a little different about their experiences around HIV um, that's pretty interesting. So really thinking about maybe um, pro, uh, targeting those types of pastors. I, I like the idea about the activism because of course the NAACP has done some great work around um, re reframing HIV, not just as a public health issue, but as a social justice issue, especially because of so many of the, how great the disparities are in blacks um, in, in black communities. And so um, th that really resonates for pastors who are really into social justice and civil rights. So rethinking that uh, I think is a good idea. And I'm just gonna talk quickly about this last um, study and then uh, I'll be, be able to finish up because it looks like I have enough time. Uh, I'm doing good with the time. I'm just gonna stop and answer, uh, Jacob, thanks for this question. Isn't it worrisome to find faith leaders in such an obstruction mode when it comes to safety and health for our youngsters on their sexual journey? Yes. Jacob, it is worrisome, but it's worrisome to find our political leaders. <laughs> could I, I could plug in political leaders, right? In such an obstruction mode. Society in general, we've got to push up against that. We just really have to. Um, so we have to think about how we, we have to do that. It is not helpful at all. Um, I, I don't think it's helpful at all. And so uh, and that all ties into the stigma um, and how we have to fight that. I, I could get into another study I did around sexual education in the South is, is so so limited compared to a state like New York where they have uh, K through 12 age appropriate um, sex education, uh, HIV education. Don't have that here in, the, in, the, in Alabama. So those are things that really tie into really building the um, stigma around uh, HIV. So uh, I was part, I was uh, um, uh, fortunate to meet uh, Dr. Amy Nunn uh, through the CDC. She does a lot, she has done a lot of work with African-American pastors in Philadelphia, and she has now shifted her um, focus to the Deep South and in Mississippi, the state of Mississippi, uh, specifically Jackson, Mississippi. So we got together and uh, we were talking about a regional sort of study uh, with pastors, African-American clergy to end the HIV uh, epidemic. This was part of a CIFAR supplement. Um, I was uh, a part of her working in Alabama. Uh, we had another partner in North Carolina who works with uh, Dr. Nunn, Sharon Parker, and then Tiffany Haynes was at Arkansas because uh, Dr. Nunn is originally from Little Rock, Arkansas. So next slide, what we did was we conducted a uh, regional um, study, Mississippi, Alabama, and Arkansas. Those, those uh, maps represent the dark spots, represent the high HIV um, um, areas. 65 black clergy in Mississippi, uh, Alabama, and Arkansas. Our aim was really to 
I think recruit a hundred, but um, this this hit during uh, COVID. We were going to do it in person, but we ended up doing it uh, by Zoom. So we did. I think we did pretty good with the recruitment. And I'll talk a little bit about um, really a lot of the recruitment. Um, it, it comes from uh, community activists. So I'll talk about that in a minute. So uh, we our topic was really to talk about this EHE, um, the new uh, areas, uh, their clergy around U equals U and PrEP, um, un, uh, undetectable equals untransmittable and PrEP, their knowledge of, uh, and interest in um, uh, participating in EHE activities, uh, their recommendations for enhancing HIV and PrEP care continuum, and their recommendations for campaign. Uh, uh, Dr. Nunn is really interested in communication uh, health campaigns around U, U equals U and PrEP. Uh, I left out the results. Uh, so the results were out of the, uh, let, let's see if it's in the next slide. So we asked all of them it, it, uh, about U, if they knew what U equals U equals, uh, U equals U means none, zero out of the 65 knew what U equals U meant, and none knew what PrEP was. So the take home lesson is we still have a lot of work to do in education around uh, these issues if we were gonna really get to uh, e, e um, ending the epidemic, uh, ending the HIV epidemic. They were very amendable to um, uh, partnering. We, we asked them specifically about partnering with health centers, uh, federally uh, qualified health centers. They were, they would like, they didn't know who those uh, persons were working in the HIV AIDS field and wanted to really be connected to them. And they also were interested in being involved in some of our uh, campaigns. So those were the take home messages. The other thing I wanted to highlight is we wrote a paper up about it. Here it is, uh, it was an AIDS and behavior. I think there were about 20 authors on this uh, paper. So collaboration, everybody's name got on the paper. Who, who, the recruitment was uh, crucial for us getting the data we needed. Uh, this, is, this is just part of the data we collected. So. Um, I just wanted to make that point, should be rewarded. And even some of them teach, uh, you know, as faculty and some of the, uh, um, uh, I think the medical center down in uh, Jackson. So, so this is an important area that needs to continue to be highlighted and should be rewarded. The knowledge that comes from community empowerment, community engagement. So I, I wanted to end with this. Uh, those living with HIV have to be in HIV leadership. Most of you know Phil Wilson was the founder of Black AIDS Institute. Uh, this is an interview with him September 3rd, 2021. Nobody can save us but us. So I'm just going to read his quote from his interview and have us kind of think about it and have some discussion around it. Tragically, it has become in inescapably apparent to me that BAI has thrived despite its board, not because of it. The current board members are disconnected from the HIV community. The cumulative effect of their failed governance, uh, refusal to ensure that the composition of the board represents the community it serves, and an unwillingness to support next-gen leadership or address an employee's harassment complaints are all undermining BAI's evolution. I know how much it has taken to build a powerful organization and how little it takes to destabilize one. So he's talking about the controversy. I think they had three or four board members leave, quit, um, many of them young. I, I went on to read the article that he, he, 
he feels that he probably should have gotten rid of all the old board members and brought on all new members. So he's alluding to the next generation leadership. So passing the torch, what are we doing? Uh, what are we doing to ensure that um, uh, there are HIV um, uh, persons impacted, um, it, their voices are a part of the conversation and leading the conversation. I love the, the part he says in there, uh, to ensure that the composition of the board represents the community it serves, et cetera. So I think one more slide, and then we can also kind of discuss some of these uh, topics. Next slide, I think, is the last one I had to throw in because I am a, uh, I, me and my husband have a nonprofit, Afram South. Um, we um, uh, got an award, uh, the EHE award uh, from the Alabama Department of Public Health. CDC through the Innovative Promise uh, category. So we, what we have is a radio show uh, that's really aimed towards women, uh, African-American women in the Montgomery area and beyond because it's an online radio uh, um, show as well. It's low power FM, 94.5 FM, but we also have online, if you see at the bottom, real small WMOLPFM.org. Um, uh, I am a co-host with a woman's wet worth community health and wellness page if you want to go to it. Um, I'm the host along with Rashonda White. Many of you know her as a, a activist, AIDS activist, uh, HIV activist in, uh, in Alabama for many years. So we would love to have you listen in on our program Monday, Wednesday, and Fridays from uh, uh, 5 a.m. Yeah, 5 a.m. They changed the time. Noon, 6 p.m. and 9 p.m. And Sundays, 1 p.m. and Saturdays, 10 a.m. Take a picture of this if you'd love. Like, we'd love for you to tune in. We have uh, uh, on the right is a scan to take you directly to the program, and on the left is a survey. We're, we're trying to evaluate how well we're doing. So far, our preliminary evaluations have shown that people like the show. Uh, all positives. We have had no negatives. Thank you so much.